I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is the Right Reverend Robert Forsyth, formerly the Anglican Bishop of South Sydney and currently a senior fellow at the Center for Independent Studies. Rob and I will be discussing his new book, Forgotten Freedom No More, Protecting Religious Liberty in Australia. Rob Forsyth, how are you? Great to be in. Great, great to join you, Salvatore. <laughs> great. You look you very comfortable me? there. Here I am. I'm, I'm sitting here on my balcony on a sunny day in the eastern suburb of Sydney. Well, I'm glad you still have the freedom to do that. <laughs> Let's talk today about freedom of religion. You call it a yeah. forgotten freedom. Is it a forgotten right? What's the state of play for religious liberty in Australia today? Okay. Let me make three points. All right. Religious liberty is, is valuable, varied, and vulnerable. It's, it's a valued mark of a mature liberal society that people are able to conduct their lives according to their own religions. And secondly, it's varied because religious freedom is not just about believing things. It's about also behaving in certain ways, following on those beliefs. It's about being able to gather together in communities and institutions and teach what, okay. what and it's varied. There are different kinds of religions and different shapes it takes. But uh, this is the key point. It's vulnerable because it's not a right in Australia. It's merely a freedom. And a freedom means simply that no one's taken it away yet. Freedom is like an empty patch of ground, not yet uh, impinged upon. Now, you say, say not, in the not book, yet, which but, seems but, to imply... Yeah, because... <laughs> well, that's right. See, it, when we say forgotten freedom no more, what we meant was not there was no freedom, but no one cared much about it because it was just taken for granted. But we All think right. there are issues today in which the issue is no longer forgotten. It's become more contentious and therefore worthy of further thought and reflection. Right. So what's the state of play? I mean, you, you, you say it's no longer being forgotten, but is it threatened? I mean, what's, what's going on here? Well, firstly, compared to places like North Korea, China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Australia is a, is a paradise for religious freedom. So we must keep this whole debate in perspective. <laughs> well, uh, you're setting uh, a low bar here, Rob. No, that, but that's very important because for lovers of liberty in the world, their minds mustn't be just about themselves, but aware of the major gross infringements on, on human rights and religious freedom occurring, serious persecution that's occurring around the world. In Australia, it's fairly benign with this, with this slight problem. Australia has undergone massive social changes in the last uh, decades, and therefore religious, or religious communities now find themselves often in a situation of holding minority views on what are now regarded as important social questions or moral questions, like particularly it's often focused on sexuality questions. Secondly, we've had a growth of law in this country, importantly protecting against discrimination, and those laws have grown and grown and grown. And therefore, we have a situation where, although religion is still free, it is facing severe that patch I mentioned, unconstrained, it's facing the threat, particularly of finding itself, its practices running into the face of these non-discrimination laws and therefore finding itself restricted. Um, and this particularly came to a head after the uh, equal marriage matter at the end of uh, 2017. Seems a long time ago, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> and that's where the issue came to a head. Right. And that's, what, that's what's led to the present government having a proposed bill and we decided to write this book to bring perspectives and analysis to some important areas in the question. 
Right now, the bill has gone through a few iterations. I actually was going to read the current draft religious discrimination bill before our interview, except I found it was 58 pages <laughs> of legalese, yeah, yeah. and I gave up on it. Could, could you, like, what's going on with the, this bill came out of the Ruddick Review. Could you explain to everyone what the Ruddick Review was, just briefly, so people know? But then let's talk yes, about the bill. The, yeah. Um, and then, yes. When the, uh, there was expressed concern by some people that if the law regarding marriage was changed to mean to so for equal marriage or same-sex marriage, it might put those who do not believe that is in fact what marriage should be like in an invidious political situation, churches, mosques, synagogues, and others who hold a different view. Would they right. be still free to hold and practice their view? And the government at the time offered a, what governments often do, Salvatore, an inquiry. <laughs> yes, and this inquiry was meant to, and it, it, and they got um, Philip Ruddock to do the inquiry and other very eminent people, and um, it it reported on the whole that not much was wrong, which wasn't that hard to believe because since the law was only changed and the inquiry met uh, just soon afterwards, but it didn't make certain proposals, which I won't bother going into detail. The government decided that it would respond by. Doing uh, passing a federal anti-discrimination, anti-religious discrimination law, and that's now in the second stage. Although it's 58 pages, Salvatore, it's very simple at one level. It okay. makes religion a religion a protected attribute. The federal law, Commonwealth law, says you cannot discriminate against somebody for religion. Secondly, it defines discrimination in two ways: direct discrimination, where I just I don't like your religion, so I can't give you a job for that reason. Right. But more interestingly, Salvatore, indirect, and that's when when a, a company or a government make a decision which on the whole is lawful but has the impact of a worse impact on people of certain religious views. For example, right. if, you're, if, if you're a law firm and say, I want you all to work on a Friday night and I'm an Orthodox Jew, which is Shabbat, and you don't make other provisions, you're oh. indirectly discriminating. Or you oh, tell right. me you're a hospital, I want, I, I want you to participate in these terminations. I, I'm a devout Catholic or Anglican. I say, no, I, this is wrong. If you don't right. make provision, you're indirectly discriminating. And thirdly, the bill says it's not discriminatory if a, a person makes a, not discriminatory, if a person engages in good faith in, in, in the conduct, which is since flowing out of the doctrines of that religion or teaching of that religion. In other words, right. you can teach what your religion teaches and do what it does. If, so if I'm an Anglican, I'm selecting people for my hospital or my school. It's, it's not a discrimination for me to say, I would like you to be an Anglican, or, right. or, or I, I wouldn't like you to be. So, so that's the three things. So you're going from... It's from... Really just about, this. It's, all, it, it's, it's not about a right to religion. It's merely about a right. freedom from discrimination. So it's, it's not a religious right or will, it's a religious discrimination bill. So you're really going from the thing that's been the most contentious has been the question of this right to teach and make statements from your faith. This has caused great anxiety about some from some other people to come to later. Right. So you're really coming from the, the least contentious to the most contentious. Because I don't think anyone would object to people having the freedom to worship as they want. Some people might object to that second uh, indirect discrimination. For okay. example, some people might think that if you, uh, you know, if you're 
religiously anti-abortion, you shouldn't be required to refer people for abortions. Or if you're opposed to uh, gender yeah, therapies, yeah. you shouldn't be required to refer people. So let's that's, let's focus on that as like as the sort of controversial part. Now we'll get to the hugely controversial part after. Uh, I mean, do you think that's right that people should that that organizations should you know carve out exceptions? I mean, if if you're a psychologist working for a you know a psychology group and someone comes in for a referral. Don't you have to refer people to all legally acceptable services, not just to ones you approve of? Um, it's, not a, it's not about approving of. Um, it's about a person having conscientious, deeply held belief that a certain course of action is not just undesirable, but deeply wrong. Right. And if you want to say, if you want to empty, if you want to empty our hospitals of all Catholic doctors by forcing all doctors to take part in terminations, go ahead. But I strike me as a deeply, a deeply illiberal thing to do when you can right. make provisions. It's it's a question of making provisions. But okay. the fundamental fact of our society is we 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 are a pluralist society. We have different views. We don't agree. And how can we live freely as most fears we can in a world where we don't all agree, and we won't all agree, but we're never going to one day say, yes, everyone thinks the same. That's the issue. So under this bill, if, if I object to performing a medical procedure or giving medical advice, it's not that the person wouldn't get the advice. It's that I would simply refer the patient to somebody else. That I wouldn't or just something. Make. I mean, it, it depends on the right. arrangement. I mean, yes, it just but means, the employer would make an, an arrangement. Indirect discrimination would be where the employer is not. If they can't make the arrangement, that's different. But if, if you can make the arrangement, and I've got an arrangement in place that effectively excludes you from right. working because you're due on the Shabbat or you um, um, you uh, hold deep views about end of life or beginning of life issues, I make provision. I'm not. Directed. The most contentious, though, wasn't that. The most contentious was the right. bit about being able to speak, uh, make states of belief. If I give a statement of belief, my religion, that in and of itself is not right. discrimination. The key phrase is, if I, if I am vilifying people, I'm harassing them, that's, that, that's, that's not protected. But in and of itself, these statements are not right. discrimination. Even well, let, if let you me, find them wrong and offensive. Right. Let me dial it back, though, to that second, because I, I still want to work through this idea. Now, I know neither of us are lawyers. At least I assume you're not a lawyer as well as a priest. <laughs> the, uh... I'm, only a bush, I'm only a bush lawyer, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but let me uh, push you a little more on this, because uh, you know, in Victoria, for example, assisted suicide is legal. Uh, psychologists or psychiatrists, I'm not sure how it's handled, make referrals for assisted suicide. Um, if you are, if because of your religious beliefs, you vehemently disagree with assisted suicide, does that mean that you will never have the chance to give advice uh, to elderly people who might be considering it because your employer will simply assign you to some other duty because you won't give well, the I, right advice? That could happen. I normally, normally, if you're a doctor in private practice, you would advise them not to. And, and I, by the way, I don't think this should just be on religious grounds. I think on some of those matters, you may be opposed to assisting someone killing themselves on, on other grounds as an atheist. And I think you also should be protected. Where, there's, where there are these edge issues, right. which there's not deep moral consensus, 
we as a society ought to allow people not to have to violate their conscience to get a job in those positions. It's just, uh, it, it, it's obvious to me, well, obvious to me, but not to others. And, the, and if you think it's important that people are able to get help to kill themselves or so forth, then the government will make other arrangements. Right. So, let, okay, so let's, let's talk about the biggie. The, 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 the third provision yeah. you talked about was, you know, the ability to hire who you want for your school, your hospital, well, you know, your... Uh, yeah. pre so, so how does hire, that play uh, out? It's, it's more complicated than this. Okay. Other discrimination will... Most discrimination law protects religious freedom by having carve-outs, by saying that nothing in this bill... Um, applies to certain conditions of, 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 of religious... I've got, them, I've got it here, actually. It's rather complicated, but something like nothing in this bill... This is the Anti-Discrimination Act in New South Wales, okay. as an example. Nothing in this act affects the ordination of priests, the training of the clergy, the appointment of people established to, to propagate religion, or any other practice which is, quote, um, which would necessarily avoid injury to the religious susceptibilities. So... The, the, the law that says you can't discriminate on the basis of someone's gender or sex doesn't right. apply to the Roman Catholic Church because they have they have male priesthood, and therefore the, the normal the normal rule is in normal life you can't reject someone for the job of being um, a uh, shop assistant because they're a man or a woman. There are certain places where does the Catholic Church and various Jewish organisations so they're carve outs, right? Okay. And so and. And now, that whole question of carve-outs, especially to do with who, who was employed at schools, caused a great excitement during the Wentworth by-election here in New South Wales um, in 19... When was it? I'm trying to think it was. 18. 2018. Great. Everyone went berserk. And, the, and, uh, the, gov and uh, the government, they referred these whole carve-outs because the... Um, the Rutherford Report had proposed minor changes to the present present law. People suddenly got very excited it was a law, and so the, the federal government referred to the Australian Law Reform Commission. They're still looking into it. So that's there. The Anti-Discrimination Act that is present here merely says that discriminating on the basis of someone's religion is allowed. In other words, right. you, you can't protect religion and then say all you Jews have to hire Christians or all you Muslims have to have to hire Buddhists. You've got to allow each industry, in, in each community to select people to keep the integrity of their, of their community. That's that's what we're saying. That's why it's not discrimination; it's selection. And that's okay. uh, the, the most controversial wasn't that it was the fact that a statement of faith in of itself is not discrimination. And some people have said this means that Christians will be going around abusing people and causing all these, saying these terrible things. Anti um, homophobic, bigoted remarks. Uh, this has been right. the fear. It's not the case because present, there's no law stopping that anyway, in most, except in, in Tasmania. Right. And it, it merely says that for a Christian or a Buddhist or a Jew or a Sikh to make a statement according to their faith should not be contrary to law in this country. And I think that as long as it's done in good faith, not to vilify right. others. So, so as an American, and of course, you know, we Americans are very attached to our our freedom of speech. As an American, it's a bit surprised coming to Australia with with all the 
you know, defamation and hate speech and all these laws limiting speech. And something I found very troubling was during the gay marriage referendum, I heard people suggesting that opposing the referendum that is advocating that people should vote no was a form of hate speech. <laughs> well, how can you have a referendum if voting well, one way constitutes you, you, your active voting it, it, is an act of hate? It wasn't a referendum. It was an indicative plebiscite that just parked that question. Right, okay. A this, I think this reflects but I think this reflects the sad situation place we are in this country. One of the great problems this debate is bedeviled by is deep mistrust on both sides, and that that many people who are for um, were for the change of the, the, the meaning of marriage regarded those who opposed as having bad faith, that they were really not conscientiously objecting, but it was basically a deep form of prejudice and anti-gay hatred. And therefore, that all the talk about religious freedom was a was a smokescreen. On the other hand, those of the those in religious communities were thinking that many of the of the call for for the proper recognition that, that marriage gave to homosexual other people was really a way of um, uh, since it was also deeply a matter of bad faith. No one no one's been really listening sympathetic to each other in this country, and that's still the case today. And so we have. Even this poor bill that's really, I think, on the whole, fairly non-contentious, it's a bit complicated. Um, the lack of bad faith means that you will get the situation where someone will say, if you advocate a vote, no, you are being a bigot or something like that. Um, I blame the Americans, actually, um, because <laughs> a lot of people are reading this debate through the lens of the civil rights debates in the US in the 70s and 60s. And so those of us like myself who don't think that the law of marriage should have been changed are often painted as equivalent to those defending Jim Crow laws in the South. And when you think we're like that, then you don't, there's no space for us. We, we are regarded as morally reprehensible. We want to say, no, we have good faith. You may not agree with us. We understand that. The reasons we disagree are very deep. And um, we need, we, what we're asking for is what we want to give respect and freedom and receive respect and freedom. Okay. That's the only way to proceed. Now, we're about to go to questions. So those of you listening, if you can get your questions in the chat box in YouTube, that's the best place for them. If you post questions elsewhere, like on Facebook, they'll get back to me. But if you're watching on YouTube, straight in the chat box on YouTube. I'd also like to take this opportunity to encourage everyone to subscribe, if you're not already subscribed, to the CIS YouTube channel. Obviously, like the video. That helps us. But crucially, this is end of financial year. CAS, like many other organizations, is out here asking for your support. But there is a big difference. The CIS does not accept any government funding of any kind whatsoever. And that even includes completely non-political government funding like JobKeeper. So CIS, while other organizations have been able to access JobKeeper benefits in order to keep people employed and to keep their payroll going, the Center for Independent Studies has foregone that. So CIS particularly needs your contribution because the CIS is absolutely not depending on government largesse to get through this crisis. It's relying on you. 
and your generosity. So please, there's a link there in the comment section on YouTube or just go to the CIS website. Uh, you can, if you're not already a member, become a member. Membership tiers start at $40 a year, which is pretty mild. In fact, if you were coming to this as a live event, you'd probably be paying $40 for the event. So we'd really appreciate you uh, getting a membership at CIS, or if you're already a member, donating as part of the end of financial year campaign. Uh, we are going to take some questions. I have one more question for you, Rob, and as you're, I see you're about to hold it up. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, what the book. About this, yeah. So I have my copy of the book right here. <laughs> well, I've got mine is similar. It's, and, it's Common Core who published it. It's, 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 yeah. it's available online, and, the, and the, the real physical copy is coming out shortly. Uh, what we tried to do was to get to get together a very broad group of people who are sympathetic to the cause of religious freedom in Australia and are concerned about its vulnerability from all kinds of backgrounds. So we deliberately got atheists, this sounds like a joke, an atheist, an Anglican, <laughs> and a Catholic, Jew, Muslim. Uh, we got um, uh, historians, uh, probably too many lawyers. I'm afraid that's the danger of this area. And so although... And, then, and there's, I think, some very, very, very important, very important chapters indeed, uh, different perspectives, and in a very CIS way. Although, though we agree there is an issue here, and it's it should be a concern for all lovers of liberty, whether you're religious or not, um, so that, that we that uh, we do have a robust religious freedom in this country protected. The the ways for disagree. Some say that. The law is always making things worse, so we can't rely upon the law to save us. Others are proposing a religious freedom act, a positive freedom, which are, and some are going forward in matters a bit like the way the government suggested. So it's it's a very interesting, wide-ranging read. So I do, if I say so myself, recommend it. Hey, well, and I see you've got some big names in there. Henry Ergus, uh, yes. we've got James Allen, Augusta Zimmerman, not least Peter Curti is in the book. Patrick Parkinson. Um, Rat, Rat, Rabbi Elton from the Great Synagogue, Michael Bird right. from uh, Rigby College in uh, in Melbourne, Tanvir and Med, Med, the psychologist, psychiatrist, and uh -huh. Muslim background and so forth. And I've written with with help from Peter and, and others uh, a, a a lengthy introduction to not just a brief one, but a kind of a case for religious freedom and trying to lay the issue out in some many words. So it's a very it's in two parts: analysis of the problems and issues, and then perspectives. And uh, we're hoping that it will. We're a bit anxious, actually, that the law might get changed and the whole issue not be not be an issue. But the way things are going, <laughs> we may never have any change in law. This may be a perennial question, so the book may never lose its currency. All right. Well, the purchase link is down there in the comment section. Uh, Edward has a question for you. Does Rob think? Do you think that Christian schools should be allowed to fire teachers who they discover? or who they discover are uh, homosexual or who have changed their sexuality since their appointment? Um, should they have the legal right to? I think they should. Um, should they do it? That is, it's a difficult question, this one. And this, okay. this, is, this is the real hot, one of the real hot issues. Um, it, how do I put this? For school, most, most Christian schools, and I'm on the board of, a, of, of, a, of an Anglican school, are very, right. very generous in these areas and are not hardline. And that's not the case. There are some schools which I call intensive uh, religious communities where the teachers, the staff are all expected to be 
fully on board with with a with an intent a, 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 a deliberate Christian or Jewish or Muslim view of the world right. in their education. I think in those circumstances, if a teacher says, not that they are homosexual, I don't think that's, if it's all about behavior, I intend to live a way of life in my sexual life, it turns out to be contrary to that of the whatever the religious mores of the institution is or the community. I think if the community might say, look, we want people who walk the walk in their personal lives because okay. we teach here. So I suspect they should have the freedom to do that to protect their um, the integrity of their community. Right. Um, and, we're, and to be clear, you're, it's it's be free from the law laws. We say you can't do that. That's, that's, this is the question that the law and Australian Law Reform Commission will come back with um, sometime right. after the knows when. And although so much of the talk about this is about uh, homosexuality, this would equally apply, I suppose, to unmarried couples. Uh, well, to... it, 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 well, it could. It, it could refer to any behaviour which is, is in tension or contrary to the expected behaviour of adherents of the religion who intend to make their school an exemplar of that religion. And All right. In in the, in the modern world, in the modern world, the biggest difference is over sexuality. It's the the biggest change has occurred in the last fifty okay. years, where 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 religious communities are now minorities. I call them recalcitrant minorities. The whole view is that were once mainstream, but are now regarded as weird in many right. cases, and not and, and, and immoral. How do are they going to be able to keep those communities? In those terms, or, or will the state say, no, you must sign up to this right. view of sexuality? And I say, right. uh, they shouldn't, even if they're wrong. I'm just not arguing that the schools right. are right. On, on my, my case is not who's right about sexuality. It's the right. freedom to maintain the integrity of your community. Right. Anthony wants to know about the rights of parents. Uh, should parents have rights to, you know, over what their children are learning in school? Of course. In general terms, yes, because schooling, parents are the primary response. The, the right of a parent to a child is a natural right that no one can take away. That's 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 a given right. And the, the, the state says, in fact, the state says if you can do it, you can do it. Tra train your kids at home. I've got friends who are doing homeschooling. I'm, I was going to get them out, frankly, mm -hmm. <laughs> in someone else's hands. Uh, but the, the parents have the primary responsibility for the upbringing of their children. I think the community rightly says there are certain standards of what should be taught, aware that individual parents can't educate a child without help, and therefore there's a place for schooling. But what, we, what I don't want to see is schools saying they know better than parents on some of these contentious moral issues. That would be wrong. Right. Now, Gay wants to, though, make a distinction between what employees do in their personal lives versus what employees do in their professional lives. I mean, is it reasonable? You said that, that, you know, religious organizations may demand that their employees not only talk the talk, but walk the walk in their personal life. Yeah. Is that yeah. a reasonable yeah. requirement? Firstly, Guy's right. There's a big distinction between the two. And, and, that's, and, and there is a distinction. Absolutely. The question is, how watertight is that distinction? Normally, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant, in my view. Um, I know nothing about you, Salvatore. And, but it, for your work in the CIS, um, what matters is your work in the CIS. Where you have situations where people are acting as moral exemplars, 
as, as mentors, then that distinction, though still real, is not as watertight. And so if someone in their private life, I'll give you an example. If, if I was in a, if I was uh, in, a, in a woman's refuge, but really was abusive and, and was a very good work in the refuge, but at home, I was dishonouring to my wife. Think, hang on, Rob, there's something wrong here. You can't be saying one thing at work. That's only true of certain jobs, not many. But it does apply, can apply in religious communities, right. particularly the ones I call intense, intensive religious communities and their schools. Well, I guess the big controversy here is over teachers in school, and especially because religious schools in Australia often receive funding from the government. Yeah. What's so? Let, let's let's get to that example. I, I mean, should a teacher in a publicly funded religious school be free to do whatever you know she, he, or Z wants in Z's spare time? It it depends. In principle, it depends upon why the government is funding the school. Um, if the government is funding schools or funding an institution, let's make it wider than schools, shall we? Because this might apply to other places. The government says, I'm going to fund you because the government needs someone to act on behalf of the government. We're tendering out this, 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 this uh, maybe our employment service. The government's got a perfect right to say, here are the, here are the terms. If you want the jobs, what, you want to get the tender, here are the terms. But if the government is, is funding organisations because they want to encourage diversity and uh, they want to encourage different kinds of schools, then you must make sure that the if you want religious schools, you've got to make sure they have the freedom to maintain their religious religion. Otherwise, there's no point. So well, if in Australia, the freedom to order, 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 select their staff by their criteria, you basically are creating an existential threat to the very irreligious nature of the school. And therefore, if that's why the government's paying them, they shouldn't be imposing upon the schools uh, right. certain employment requirements. Well, is, in Australia, is the government funding schools as a service provider? Because practically speaking, schools have historically, I'm sorry, religious institutions have historically provided these services and the government picks up the tab? Or is the, or is the government funding religious schools, as you say, in order to promote diversity in education? I mean, to my mind, there doesn't seem to be a lot of diversity in education in Australia. It seems like there's a very heavy-handed curriculum coming down from above. You may be right. In the 1880s, almost all the states, the government established its own schooling system and there was no money provided for religious schools. But some, some, some churches, the Roman Catholic Church, with great sacrifice, with any, without a cent from the government, maintained their systems, often using, re, using uh, religious, that is, um, uh, dedicated celibate um, nuns and, and, uh, and so forth. In the 1950s, I think it was in Australia, the, the, the crucial matter, the federal government decided to make some money available to help some of these schools continue. And since then, the, the trickle has become much more of a flood. And, I, and in fact, more of a flood under John Howard even more. I think, I think it, it's, for, it's for diversity. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's to say we want to have a strong, vibrant government system. We also want to allow an independent system, not just high fees, not just the rich schools, but particularly independent system which are providing an alternative, uh, low-fee schools. And that's what's happening. So I think it is because of diversity and therefore the government should allow the bodies running these schools to maintain 
the selection criteria to maintain their integrity rather than being washed out to become a mere, so they can no longer keep who they are. All right. Now, Edward asks a question about a story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Edward asks a question about a story in The Economist. Uh, they gave an example of a nurse who was frightening patients before they went in for operations by talking about heaven and preparing their souls and getting ready just in case. And she was fired by the hospital for, you know, frightening patients. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, now that's not, she wasn't frightened for being religious. She was frightened, she was fired for expressing her very genuine concerns there in the workplace. How do you view these kind of borderline cases? Well, firstly, it is borderline, isn't it? She's yeah. there to be a nurse. <laughs> she's not the chaplain. Uh, she's yeah. there to be a nurse. I understand why she. I understand from her point of view why this is regarded as very helpful. But I think in that situation, um, if she's frightening, and the, the way she's doing it also may be quite unhelpful. She may have not be skilled to do it. I think that there, she should be doing nursing, caring, quietly praying if she's a religious person. But I, but there, I suspect the hospital had a point to say, look, don't do this to your patients. Find other ways, but not this. So that's what I think probably the hospital had a right to um, to do it. I think I may be wrong, but that's one of those. There are a whole lot of areas, Salvatore, which I like them on the edge. Right. On the edge. And that's what we need to acknowledge. That the debate needs acknowledgement of its complexity and its nuance rather than the kind of black and whiteness, uh, which I think increasingly uh, has bedeviled the debate uh, in Australia, certainly. Um, where some want to push back entirely so that religion should just be something kept inside the mosque or, or the church or the synagogue and have really nothing to do with, with public life. Uh, and and others say, no, that's not right. We need to be able to exist and breathe and play our part in serving the society. All right. Now, I need to make a quick plug. A week from Friday, the Center for Independent Studies will be hosting George Will. Now, if you don't know George Will, he is a big-time American political columnist. In fact, I used to subscribe to Newsweek. This will tell you how nerdy I always have been. I used to subscribe to Newsweek in high school, and George Will was writing the back page column in Newsweek back in the 1980s when I was in high school, and he's been a columnist ever since. Uh, he was already big in the 1980s. Now, he's going to be doing a CIS event. He was supposed to be giving a lecture here in person. He won't be able to do that. He's doing an event a week from Friday that is on Friday, June 5th. You can register for that. Link is in the comments section. We'd love to have you join us for the George Will Lecture. Rob, we have a uh, comment from Anthony, but I think you might want to respond to it. Uh, if the government funds a school, should it expect or it should expect the school to teach non-religious subjects? Uh, so what about the STEM yes. subjects? Yes. And, and should there be a standard for how they teach biology, I guess, is probably the, the, the big contentious uh, one. Simple answer, yes, 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 and yes, yes. Um, a religious school is not a school that teaches just religion. A religious school teaches what needs to be taught in the context of religious community and outlook. So, yes, all those are perfectly right for the government to say, you teach, this is the, this is the curriculum. Um, in fact, we, this is what we regard as education. This is, this is, this is and the perfect right to insist on that if you're educated. Right. Now, Max, our producer, our executive producer, I've got to take this question. The orders come down from above. Uh, <laughs> there's more than well, one. The answer is, 
the answer is whatever it is, he's right. Is the <laughs> there's, there's, there's more than one above in this in this uh, live stream. Uh, look, he wants to know how is the pandemic uh, impacting attendance at services, especially you know, Eid is going is you know, is right now. Uh, of course, we had Easter just passed. Um, what's been the effect, and will it will it be long term? Um, I can only speak my own experience uh, as a Christian minister, because I'm still working part-time as well as for CIS. I'm still in the ministry part-time. Uh, we've gone online, and uh, which we've learned very, very quickly, the art of doing things online, producing services. I run Bible studies online, even have morning tea on Zoom. Um, mm. It seems on the whole that, that the, it's been remarkably successful in maintaining connection of communities. We miss... I mean, it's really hard when you can't meet together physically because uh, believers often come together for meals and for the sacraments in, in my tradition. I've heard of one church in Sydney. This is true. I heard just yesterday. Uh, I, I'll mention it. It's Christ Church St. Lawrence there in, in Railway Square, a very, uh, a, a very lovely Anglo-Catholic Anglican church. Right. Someone told me that they're getting 11,000 hits on their stream service. Wow. Uh, many, many from overseas. <laughs> I've also heard other places where when guys have been, when churches rather have been streaming their services, many of their neighbours who didn't have the courage to turn up and just sometimes sticking their nose in and watching what's going on. So it's not been the death of religion. It seems to be, as it often does, adapting. Although to be frank with you, as a time of broadcasting on today, I'm surprised that um, it may be changed after this broadcast has been gone on, but in here in New South Wales, we can have pubs and clubs with <laughs> up to 50, but uh, churches can't. So I've, I've been suggesting that maybe we should start setting booze in the churches so we can lift up. This is an anomaly that could be changed. Well, I have one final question for you, and we are about to wrap up, so we'll be leaving it here for, for viewer questions. But I do have one final question for you, Rob, and that's about the long-term effect of churches learning how to go online. Now, of course, we've had online for 30 years, but you know these services that are going online, are these going to continue post-coronavirus? Are these services, and I mean that in both senses, both religious services, but also these services to the communities that churches provide, are they going to be now in the internet age in a way they never were before? A bit. Some. Right. I think uh, you've learned, we've learned two things, and I think we've learned it in all areas of life. We've learned, A, we can do much more online than we thought, right. and isn't that great? And so the church I'm at, we're thinking of when we, have, when we get back together in the same rebuilding, which we're longing to do, we, 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 it's, it's not the same experience at all, we may still live stream for those who can't. So I think it may, it's make I appreciate being together, being together, drinking right. the bread and eating the bread, drinking the wine, the sacrament, hearing, you know, being together, around together. That matters a great deal. But also we've realized that you can do a lot more online than you thought. And so I, we're not going to go back to never online. And many, I don't know about other traditions, but many clergy in my tradition have suddenly become um, rather expert online producers. Sure. <laughs> and skilled. So we're, we're, so we're stepping up and learning about it. It's a fascinating thing to watch, actually. Well, Reverend Robert Forsythe, thank you for joining me today on On Liberty. Please, everyone, have a look for the book. It's at Connor Court Publishing. 
Rob, we really appreciate you being on the show. I'd also like to thank everyone for watching, of course. I'd like to thank our producer, Emily Holmes, who's kept everything running on a shoestring budget. Emily, thank you for keeping us on the air. Our executive producer, Max Hawk Weaver, and the director of CIS is Tom Switzer. Thanks, everyone, and we will see you, or at least you will see us, next week.